Alright, so particularly for those who have been itching to do uh, Christmas stuff already, how many people have got their trees up? Really? <laughs> Beck has been asking for the tree up since, I don't know, just before November. Um, so about a week ago, she was like, let's get a tree up. I was like, no, <laughs> it's not Christmas yet. So, so if you really want to celebrate Christmas early, a uh, couple of Saturdays time, we're going to have a, an awesome uh, time. Uh, but we've got a bit of work to do today because this series is a bit of uh, working through a particular passage in the Bible. Uh, we are in our Sermon on the Mount series and we are taking this very, very important message that Jesus gave to us and we're working through verse by verse, line by line and talking about it. And last week we started this series and we talked about how we need to approach the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus's I don't know why I slowed that down. Jesus' inauguration message. This is Jesus teaching about, basically, I'm king and this is my kingdom. And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, when we hold that in mind, it brings new light to a lot of what is being said. This is not some nice suggestions. This is the king saying, this is what my kingdom is like. You're either in or you're out. And that might sound a little bit harsh, uh, but I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well uh, today. But Jesus then starts this inauguration message by using the word blessed. And we talked about the word blessed. We define blessed as signs of a life lived in proximity to God. Blessed is not some kind of, I receive uh, this nice thing that makes me happy, even though that can be a part of it. Being blessed is knowing that my life is close to the Creator God. I am living with the One who knows how to make me flourish. And so that's what ble being blessed is all about. So when we go today, we're going to be moving into the, be uh, the Beatitudes, which we mentioned last week are not beautiful attitudes. Uh, that was some Sunday school teacher with a really wonderful intention to help people understand what Beatitudes are, uh, but that's not what it's about. It's not just attitudes, but this is actually about a proclamation of what it means to be living a life in proximity to God. And, um, and so we're going to jump into that, but something that I wanted to bring to, uh, to us uh, is that one of the things about reading the Bible is that sometimes you can kind of hit different passages and it's a little bit weird, isn't it? And it's a little bit clunky. And, and especially when you read the Beatitudes, which are supposed to be like happiness sayings, if you will. I don't know. They don't really make me happy. They make me go a little bit sad, uh, which apparently, bless the those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. But anyway, um, when we read certain passages, what we need to understand is that God has woven the whole Bible together and He's allowed certain events to happen at certain times and then this whole thing has come together and the purpose of us having this is not to... This is the word of God for me today. Now, son of man, take a block of clay and put it in front of you and draw... That's not how we read the Bible. This, that, there's actually a, I learned about this this week, I thought it was really funny, I can't remember the word, but there is an actual term for people that go, what is God saying to me today? 
This is the word of God. This is, that's not how we read the Bible. That is actually a travesty. That is, that is like terrible. You might as well just open any book you want and, and read the, the star signs to get whatever you're supposed to be living by. What we're meant to be doing with the Bible is reading it and then rereading it and rereading it. What happens when you read a mystery story and you get to the end? What happens? you find out about the conclusion, right? And then if you read the story again, you can now hold the conclusion in mind and understand how the different pieces are fitting together with the conclusion in mind. And so we are reading a story that already has a conclusion. And if we read a passage that is outside without holding in mind a conclusion, we are only going to get a little taste of how the story is building to what is the climax, what is important. And in literature, there is actually this concept that the best books aren't the books that you read the first time and it's amazing. The best books are the ones that you want to reread because you have listen or read or seen the conclusion and you go, ooh, I, I, I want to read it all again. So apparently, I've not read any of her books and I don't intend to, but Jane Austen is a master or mistress, mistress, master, masteress <laughs> uh, of, of this. She writes her Pride and Prejudice book and literally there are people that reread that annually. There are people that, it's like, don't you know what happens? Yes, that's the point. You know, uh, there, there are people who have read Harry Potter. I haven't read Harry Potter. And they will read Harry Potter. And then the next year they'll go, I want to immerse myself in the story again. Don't you know what happens? Yes, exactly. That's the point. The whole point of reading the Bible is not that we read it the first time and, and, and it's in us and, and we can go, I, I know the Bible. No, the whole point of the Bible is that we read it and we reread it and we reread it with the conclusion in mind. So that actually what God is trying to say becomes uh, the, the conclusions that the Bible makes. We read into everything that happens from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Isn't that exciting? Yes. I hope this makes you want to read the Bible. Because one of the biggest problems is that we have a cherry-picking method in reading the Bible. We take bits and then we read that and we read that and so do you know that there are so many many paradoxes in the bible where one little passage will say this and then another passage will say something else at a state conference that beck and i were at a few weeks ago one of the speakers brought this up there is a passage that says that eunuchs are not allowed into the kingdom of israel and then a few books later eunuchs are allowed into the kingdom of israel and so it depends on what you cherry pick for the day and you could be getting the whole kingdom upside down. You're getting the kingdom wrong because you picked the wrong passage for the wrong day. And you could be living outside of God's will because you cherry-picked and you took one little passage and you've forgotten the whole thing. So what Christians need to do is not get a message, but the message, and filter through in order to understand the Word of God. What is the key themes? What are the key conclusions that the Bible wants to make? And as we read the Beatitudes today, hold that in mind. 
What are the conclusions that we are meant to filter the Beatitudes through? Because we will not understand the Beatitudes if we just read it in isolation. So you ready to go? Ready to do some reading? Let's go. Matthew 5, 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you um late last year to sometime in this year i read a couple of books um and i mentioned this last week this is the cost of discipleship by a german theologian named dietrich bonhoeffer and um, Bonhoeffer uh, wrote this book primarily uh, focused on bringing out the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read this uh, in isolation, it's a good book, but when you understand the context of how and when he wrote this, it brings a whole nother point to what he's saying. See, I did something really cool. I didn't plan it, but I read this before I read this. And this is Bonhoeffer's story, and this is Bonhoeffer's work. And so I understand the work in the context of his story. And so let me just tell you a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says that he was a pastor, a martyr, a prophet, and a spy. And what was going on is that Bonhoeffer uh, lived in, in um, Germany uh, right after World War I, and Germany was in shambles um, because um, they lost the war. And the whole world was really angry that they started a war, and so Germany was not in a good place. And so Bonhoeffer grew up in that Germany just as Hitler was about to take power. And another thing that you need to know about Germany is that Germany is um, essentially, they consider themselves a Christian nation. But more specifically, Germans consider themselves Lutheran. Lutherans are a denomination, if you will, and they follow the teaching of a man called Martin Luther, who is a very uh, prominent and important uh, figure in church history. He lived around the 1500s and he brought reformation uh, to the Catholic Church, um, which essentially then uh, made what we call the Protestant uh, Church today. Now, uh, Luther had such a key influence in Germany that all Germans consider themselves Lutheran. In fact, I was speaking to some other uh, uh, pastors that, that do some work in um, uh, Germany from uh, their base is Australia and they do some work in, in Germany. So one of the interesting things is that if you plant a church in Germany today um, and you are not Lutheran, they do not consider you a church. Yeah, you're not a church if you're not Lutheran. If you are Lutheran, you will have all the benefits of being a classified as a church. But if you're not Lutheran, you do not have any of the benefits of being a church in Germany. That is to this day. Luther had such crazy influence. In fact, Luther translated the Bible from, I think it was Latin, into German, except at that point in time, there wasn't a German language. 
there were a bunch of Germanic tribes that spoke different languages, and he translated it and tried to bring all the different points together. One man, crazy. And he created this German Bible, translated this German Bible, and he created a whole bunch of words uh, to, to bring the Bible to life in German. And so, by doing so, he created the modern German language. This man literally created the German language. Literally created the German language. That's how influential Luther was. And so he, he has massive impact on even the theology that we have in all our churches today. But the Lutheran church kind of got a little bit too content. And they started to slide in certain key things of theology, and they started to do weird things to their theology, and they started to become really liberal in their theology. And that's when Hitler and Bonhoeffer came into the scene. Bonhoeffer was really concerned that the state of theology in the German church was slipping, and he wanted to bring reformation, much like Luther did in his day and age, and Bonhoeffer wanted to do that. And in so doing, he actually created another branch of church that is somewhat, somewhat what known, but it's called the uh, Confessing Church over in Germany. And, and he did that because they confessed the true tenets of Christianity, whereas the Lutheran Church had actually slipped. But anyway, I say all of that because uh, uh, Hitler, being a, a weird genius, he started to learn how to manipulate and use the Lutheran Church for his personal benefit. And that was also part of why Bonhoeffer was going like, man, this is really, really scary stuff. And so he started to work against the propaganda and the usage of the Bible to, uh, 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 to justify what the Germans were doing uh, in their country in preparing themselves for war. And, uh, and they were uh, oppressing the Jews even before the war started. And, and Bonhoeffer, whose brother-in-law was a Jew, uh, was, was really concerned and he was doing all of this stuff, and so he was working behind the scene, and he kind of became a bit of a marked man uh, because uh, uh, the, the Germans didn't like that this young theologian, by the way, he was only in his uh, late 20s at that point, crazy, he, 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 he was bringing reformation to the German church in his late 20s crazy. And, um, and so he, he was doing all that. He was a marked man. And so he actually traveled quite a bit to bring a bit of the heat down on his life. He went to America. He went to lots of different places and he built connection. And so one of the things that he did is that he became part of a plot to take down Hitler and to bring about um, change in the politics of Germany because Hitler was a crazy despotic a maniac uh, who was going to destroy the nation, as we would find out a little bit later. At that point in time, they did not know how much Hitler was going to destroy Germany. In fact, many people thought that Hitler was the Messiah of Germany. And, and so um, uh, what, the, uh, what this uh, conspiracy group did is that they got Bonhoeffer to go out of Germany and to bring uh, news that there are people that are resisting Hitler. Because as far as everyone else knew, Hitler was 
was the only person available as the ruler of Germany. And so the, uh, they were really worried that people were going to crush Germany and leave it with nothing because they thought that all Germans are Nazis. And they did not want that to happen. And so Bonhoeffer was bringing news of what was truly happening in Germany. And, and he was doing all of this stuff. And so he was part of this conspiracy. And, um, and at one point, he came back to Germany, and things were really getting bad. And they were starting to conscript people to be part of the German army. And um, they were really worried that Bonhoeffer was either going to get conscripted or he was going to get caught. And so he, uh, um, uh, his friends got him to leave Germany so that he would not die, basically. And they brought him back to his, uh, they, they sent him to his friends that he had made previ on previous trips. And he went to America and all of that. But there was something in his heart that, that did not settle and he felt that he was meant to go back to Germany. And so he travels back to Germany when Hitler was already in power and, 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 and a very strong presence. And soon after coming back to Germany, he got caught. And he got put into a concentration camp. Soon after that, he dies, I think by firing squad. But before he dies, he wrote this book while in a concentration camp. And what he writes in The Cost of Discipleship isn't easy to read. Because as he espouses what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, he writes about, basically, hold that perspective in mind. This man knew he was going back to Germany to die. And he was willing to do that. He willingly brought himself back to Germany to die. In the process of doing so, we have this wonderful book. But when we read the Sermon on the Mount, something that I find extremely interesting is holding in mind that someone died following these words. In fact, I would assume that many people died following these words. So if you are not ready to make some adjustments in your life from these words, you might be missing the point. So with that in mind, let's read this wonderful, beautiful passage and go through this verse by verse. So when Bonhoeffer reads the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that he first does is that he sets up the literal setting as far as we can tell. So Jesus had been going around, he'd been preaching and he'd been healing and a whole crowd wanted to come and hear him. And what he then did is that he got onto this mountain, he sat down and then he got his disciples around him. And so Bonhoeffer notices that there's a difference between the disciples and the crowd. There are two different groups of people. There are the ones that Jesus had recently called to follow him, many of whom had left everything like everything to follow Jesus. And then there were crowds who had heard about what Jesus was able to do and they wanted to see him. So there were those who had wholeheartedly given their lives to Jesus and then there were those who wanted a show. And Bonhoeffer makes a contrast between these two and he says that the words of the Beatitude were said specifically to the disciples 
in contrast to the crowd. And so the first line is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first thing that he frames uh, the whole Beatitudes around. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are crowds of people that wanted to come for the show, many of whom still had their livelihood, still had their lifestyle, still had everything intact. And then there were the disciples who were living completely at the mercy of where Jesus wanted to go next. And there is this sense that sometimes as disciples, we can look at the crowds that are around us and we can go, they've got something really cool that I want. But Jesus refers and he speaks to the disciples and says, don't look at them, look at me. You might be living in poverty now, but understand that yours is the kingdom of heaven. The king gives his speech and he says, you might be poor and that is a sign because you've given everything to follow me that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now I struggle a little bit with the phrase poor in spirit because I was wondering what that was referring to because sometimes I'm kind of like, does that mean that I don't have much of the spirit? Does that mean that you know, God's not really with me? Does that mean that I'm not very powerful in my prayer? Does it, what does this refer to? I think what it means that the Spirit talks about the essence of a person. And so what he's saying about the poverty of spirit is that you do not have much worth in the context of the world. Blessed are those who do not see their worth as coming from the context of the world. This doesn't mean that you all have to give your money, even though if you want to. The church is always willing to expand and do amazing things. There is an ARC event coming up. It's going to cost us money. You don't mind the money. But I'm not saying that this is about you getting rid of your money because money is evil. In fact, there's a passage in Luke that I read recently where Jesus, in referring to what he was doing uh, to convince John the Baptist that he was the Messiah, he said the gospels being preached to the poor and who he was referring to were tax collectors. They were rich people. They were really rich people, but he knew that there was a poverty inside of them, that they were searching for the kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying here, do you want to know who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to know the blessedness of being in the kingdom? It means that I look at what is going on in the world and I see that of no worth, but rather I see pursuing Jesus as the thing that is of most worth. And this frames the whole set of Beatitudes. This is the king's speech. You want to be in my kingdom? You will see that nothing else in this worth. You will have this mindset. You will have this perspective that nothing in this world, nothing of the value system of the world is of the same value as the kingdom. This flows very well into the summary verse of seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Why all these will be given to you is because the kingdom is over the kingdom of this world. And that is the basis of this. And so when we think about someone like Bonhoeffer and we think about how he gave his life for Jesus, you can even see this that's in this first verse. You can say that I'm safe in another nation but really, I'm not. 
Because inside, I am trying to build a value and a worth for myself, for my essence, that is not what Jesus is placing worth on. I'm not saying that you leave your workplaces. I'm not saying any of that. But if your workplace, if your relationships, if the things that you find value in is taking precedence over pursuing Jesus, one theologian puts it this way, the opposite of blessing is curse. Cursed are those who are rich in this world, for they have lost the kingdom of heaven. It's not easy words. I need to go on. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, if you read this in a transactional manner, it's weird. So Jesus, am I supposed to come into your presence and cry? I feel like the early 2000s youth ministry, that was what it was all about. You respond to the altar call and you're like, oh, Jesus, oh, that means that Jesus has touched me. Why? Because blessed are the born. I'm so sad, Jesus. No, that's not it. See, what I think Jesus is speaking about is that they don't have a value attachment to this world and they don't have an emotional attachment to this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. They are similar parts of the same coin. Jesus is saying that those who value and have peace and love what they're accumulating in this world, they're not seeing things from the perspective of Jesus. Remember Jesus, he goes up onto um, uh, the Mount of Olives and he looks over Jerusalem. This is close to when he's dying and he weeps and he laments and he mourns over this nation. Why? Because these guys were missing the point. And so Jesus, I think, remember we are reading the end into um, the beginning, if you will, the beginning of Jesus' spoken ministry. We know what he did. We know how he mourned. We know the things that he saw as lost. And he is telling his disciples, there are times when everyone else is rejoicing, but you are mourning. There are times when everyone else thinks that this is the best thing ever, and you are going, man, why is it that this is happening? Now, I don't have time to go into all of these things, but the way that we treat marriages, the way that we treat the sanctity of life, there are people that are celebrating, and sometimes Christians need to mourn. Because we understand that what is going on is against the principles of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes what the world rejoices will cause Christians great sadness. Why? Is it because we're disconnected? No, it's exactly because we are connected. We are connected with how we have been wired and how we have been designed, and we can see that the world is giving voice, giving choice to things that will steal, kill, and destroy people, and therefore we mourn. Now, it doesn't say that we get militant and we trample on other people, it says that we mourn. It says that we come to God and we're saying, God, show me how I'm supposed to live in this world. What am I supposed to do? We are supposed to be sad. We are supposed to lament. We are supposed to intercede on behalf of those who are lost. And it says, for they shall be comforted. Why? Because of the kingdom. 
We're living in the king's domain, and we understand that God is still in control. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek is lost in our English language. You do not call people meek anymore. Uh, but one, one person translates it this way, that being meek is having power under control. It is saying that I have got power, but I'm not going to use it. So you, you could call it self-control. Some people call it emotional regulation in today's language. But basically, it's saying that I have abilities to do stuff, but I'm not always going to do it. I have rights that I'm able to use, but I'm not always going to use them. I have the authority to do certain things, but I'm going to make sure that I have it under control. And it says, for they shall inherit the earth. What is the whole point of the control of this power? It is because we are trying to bring in God's purposes. When we read uh, the, the, the Beatitudes, we need to bring the cross into this. We need to read about, we need to think about how Jesus was meek. When he was under trial and false accusations were flying his way, what did he do? He stayed silent. There is one old hymn that I like to come back to every now and then, and it goes in the chorus. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. And Jesus could have. He was the son of God. He could have called 10,000 angels to smite down Pilate, to smite down Ananias, to smite down Caiaphas, and, and, and set him free. He had power, but it was under control. And so sometimes we get a little bit uppity when, you know, someone gets into our space and God is saying, are you going to live for yourself? Are you going to fight for yourself? Or are you going to let me fight for you? And a strange upside down way of seeing this is blessed are those who do not use power for their own gain, but they will inherit the earth. How? Because you're part of a kingdom that operates according to different principles to how this world works. Now, I'm not saying that you become a doormat, but I'm saying, do you understand your worth, your value, your power, and shape it and use it in the direction of the kingdom? Bonhoeffer could have stayed in America and stayed safe, but he let go of that power and literally came under the power of Hitler. That's what he did in order to stay meek. Now, I've got to go move on. There are a few more blessed statements. I might have to cross over to next week. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, righteousness is about right standing with God. And so, so far we've been talking about things about the perspective and seeing that there's a difference between the kingdom and the earth, right? There's this contrast between the kingdom and how the world operates. And in this one, there's this twist, uh, there's this shift where it's not just about standing apart from, but it's actually about pursuing the kingdom. There is this hungering, there is this sense that I need what the kingdom has, and I'm going to pursue that. That is of the greatest value, and that is the thing that is most important. Now, I've been reading this book and, uh, uh, by, by um, a theologian named Frank Machia, and he says the Hebraic notion of righteousness is a, get this, this is great, a liberating and redemptive concept that reorders life towards justice and mercy. 
a liberating and redemptive concept. It is a freeing thing when we understand righteousness. For the Hebrew person, living in righteousness is a sense of freedom. There's this redemption from wrong, uh, redemption from sin, redemption from brokenness, um, uh, and reorders life towards justice and mercy. And he goes on to say that in the kingdom of God, righteousness is therefore a liberating concept that sets one on the path of loving God and neighbor with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not about, oh, I really need God right now, but it's actually a whole reordering of my life. See, when we hunger for something, we reorder our day in order to fill that hunger. For example, there are days where I hunger for a bubble tea. My love language is a bubble tea. If you want to love me, get me a bubble tea. Seriously, it's great. And there are times where I'm like, can I like, just change the order of my day? so that I can go to the bubble tea shop and get me a bubble tea. Anyone ever felt that way? Pregnant ladies, you're all over this. You know, there are times where there are those hungerings, and you will twist your husband's arm and say, you need to do this. I'm glad that I've not had to experience those hungers. But what I'm saying is that in our life, we hunger. We hunger for stuff. And we will reorder our days and our life in order to get what will satisfy that hunger that taste in our mouth. Do you have a taste for the kingdom? Do you have a taste for what is important to God? Do you have a taste for the justice and the mercy of God? Do you have a taste for how good God is and wanting to be in His presence? Do you have a taste for uh, what, what life in community in God's family is meant to be like? There is a reordering. And so when we read in Acts 2 verses 42 to 46, like we did a few months ago, about what the early church did, they had a taste of the kingdom and they hungered and they thirsted for it. They reordered their life and they met daily so that they could hear more about the teaching, learn more about the life, and get each other to a point where they were truly living for the kingdom. My question for us is that following Jesus isn't just about the moments that are convenient for us. When we sing songs like, I am available, are you singing I'm available on Sundays between 10 and 12? I'm available, God. After I've done this. I'm available when I've got that. When we sing songs like yours is the power, yours is the kingdom, you have no rival, this is, you have all of this, but I get to choose this. I got to choose what I hunger for. There have been times that I've hungered for things that are not of the kingdom and they derail life. I want to go quickly over the next few because I think it wraps together. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think sometimes as Christians, we can become elitist, especially in Australia where we've had the majority for a while. Sometimes you can go, but we're Christians and this is what we do. Sometimes 
Mercy is the way to move forward. We understand where we are, what we've received from God. We remember the cross and we live out of the shadow of the cross. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this one is about keeping ourselves pure. This reminds me of the Psalms, where it says, Who shall ascend the mountain of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Even though God has mercy and grace upon you, it doesn't mean that you get to approach Him however you want to. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory. You don't just go to a king and go, Yo, man. Accept me because you're full of grace. Come on. And I didn't, the way we approach God shows us the value and worth that we have for Him. And what does it say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When I keep my heart towards what is important to God, He turns up. He becomes clearer to us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Literally, the Greek are two words put together, peace and makers. Peacemakers. It's very important. It's not just peace whatever. It's about making peace. It's about crafting peace. And Jesus says that this is how you become a son of, son of God. This is crazy. We think that God's adoption into his family is by grace through faith, right? Jesus says that by grace through faith looks like making peace. So if you say that you want to be part of God's house, God's household, you must live a life of making peace. I think that's crazy. Anyway, I don't think we got enough time to, to really dwell. All of these statements, each of them, we could spend a whole half an hour. I'm just trying to give you the sense of it. Then you can walk away and deal with it. Last three verses come together as a package deal. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus brings to mind, especially for this Hebrew audience, that they had in their history always killed the ones who carried the word of God. The voice of God was always silenced in, in, in Israel's history. And he says, do you think you're going to be any different? But some of us are more worried about saving our lives and our comfort. And we lose sight of what the kingdom is all about. And when I said we reread and we bring the conclusion in, one of the things that we know in the conclusion is how Jesus lived each and every single one of these statements out over the course of his life. And do we think that if we are being called to become like Jesus, that we will have a different outcome. Why should Jesus' death and the way that he was treated by the world just somehow change the world so that all his followers get some kind of better life? I don't think that that is a biblical concept. The biblical concept 
is that we join in the suffering of Christ. See, there was a rich young ruler, we mentioned him last week, who came to Jesus and apparently he had a really good life. He was a good man. And he said to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commands. And he says, I did that, I've done that, but there's something still missing. This guy knew there was probably a taste of the kingdom, but he wasn't hungry enough for it. And Jesus says, all right, well, give all that you have. Become poor of spirit. Mourn what you have gained in the world. Become a peacemaker. Become merciful. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you will receive life and life everlasting. That young man walked away. That young man walked away. And the same choice is given to each and every single one of us every single day. I hope that there's something in you that motivated you to be in a church this morning where God's word was going to be spoken. And I hope that this morning the Holy Spirit has been stirring and moving in us. And we read this and it's like, man, that's harsh. Man, that's hard. Yes, Jesus knows because Jesus loved you so much that he came to this earth to be reviled, to be persecuted, to be broken for your transgressions and for your sins. We aren't here today because of how good we are. We are here today because of how good He is. And we are at the cusp of the kingdom. This is the picture that I get. Sometimes I think that as a church, we are so close to really seeing what God wants to do, but sometimes we stay at the gates of the kingdom because to truly go into the kingdom is going to cost us everything that is outside of the kingdom. Am I willing to leave that behind? Am I willing to reorder my life to really pursue the things of God? Or am I caught up in managing and reigning in my life and then giving God the leftovers? One of the things I love about my son is that every time I see him, he say, Daddy, and he'll run up to me. Recently, he's been a bit annoying in that. He started calling me Gong Gong, which is the name that he gives my dad. And then Beck says it's because I look like my dad. And I'm like, come on, man, he knows me. He's not adding another 30 years of life onto mine. <laughs> but there's this delight, and he runs up to me. And I think about my heavenly father. And I think about how he loves me and desires to be with me. But I probably treat God a bit like I'm a sulky teenager, often. Hey, son. One moment. I'd rather, uh. When I read the Beatitudes, the thing that strikes home is, how important is God to me? When Jesus said those words, he hadn't died yet, but we can understand the cross. We can read the cross into those words. That's the whole question. How much does God mean to you? If I can get the band up this morning, we are going to have communion together. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. 
follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.